Welcome to the latest episode of Calling All Stations with me, Christian Walmart. And with me is, as usual, Mark Walker of Cogitamus. So, Mark, what's on the agenda today? Hello, Christian. Today we're going to look at the long-running saga of the ferries that were ordered by the Scottish Government for Ireland services. We're also going to uh, reflect on further developments in the uh, dev in the story of uh, driverless vehicles, and in particular, the announcement from the Ford company via the media of a, a driverless uh, vehicle, driverless car being introduced on Britain's motorway network. Um, we're also going to look at the history and current renaissance of sleeper trains in uh, Europe and the wider world. And then finally, we will reflect on progress with airport security and the speeding up of boarding through the uh, faster analysis of liquids being carried by passengers. Okay, well, let's start with uh, that scandal, and it is uh, possible to call it a scandal, of uh, CalMac, uh, the uh, Caledonian McBrain ferries, which of course are an essential part of the transport infrastructure in Scotland, but have been much troubled, uh, particularly since uh, 2014, when they ordered uh, two new ferries. And I'm greatly indebted here to uh, my friend, Ian Jack, um, you know, one of the great journalists of the past 30, 40 years, uh, who wrote for The Guardian, was part of the Sunday Times Insight team, edited Granter for a while, um, and just wrote it so beautifully. And he's he is a, he was a Scot. He died unfortunately earlier this year. And I went to his memorial just uh, recently. And uh, he was a great passionate fan of the railways, uh, passionate fan of India as well. Two two of my own loves. Um, and we spent many a merry time kind of uh, discussing these issues. He's one of those journalists who. Uh, kind of really got to the bottom of things and did so, had a wonderful interviewing style that is a lesson to any journalist listening to this, which is just he let people talk. You know, it wasn't that kind of aggressive Jeremy Paxman style. He just let people kind of talk and and then kind of reported what they said. A, a, a great example. And he, his last great work was a, would you believe, 17,000 word article about uh, the CalMac uh, ferry scandal. I think and, I did I mean, use the word saga, Christian, so that's kind of- uh, Saga is absolutely the the, the, the the right word for it, because um, it has gone on and on, and, uh, uh, you know, looking, refreshing my, my mind on it since his article in September today, and it's uh, still uh, no sign of closure. Let's just give us a quick summary. Uh, the, the CalMac Ferries, which is a, a blend of two originally private organisations, but now run by the Scottish government, provides a, a service with about 25 different ferries for the various uh, islands and, and locks in, in Scotland. Really, as I said, an essential part of, of the infrastructure. Um, and uh, they're very much controlled by the SNP uh, government, which decided in 2014, rather controversially, to give a, a, a contract for two new ferries to the one remaining Scottish shipbuilding firm on the Clyde in Port Glasgow. Uh, and 
uh, you know, there was certainly some questioning at the time. There were several other bidders, and there was some questioning about whether the only reason this contract was given to this firm was because it was uh, in Scotland. Um, and things just got, went from bad to worse. It was supposed to be a contract of about ninety million uh, pounds for the first uh, for the, these two ferries. Um, which are you know are big ships. These are not you know with take take kind of uh, you know dozens of cars and thousand passengers and so on. So they're not kind of small kind of uh, little uh, ferry hopping uh, ships. They they're kind of major vessels. I mean, essentially, the root of the story is that the shipbuilding firm, which had fallen almost into disuse, I mean, it was just at the point of being bankrupt, really just could not cope with the order for these two ships. And, and everything that, you know, you could believe went wrong. They were poorly designed, that one of them was launched uh, far too early. And once you launch something, as, some, as somebody says in the article, uh, it costs at least twice or four times as much to do uh, uh, any other work. Um, uh, the firm uh, building it was then sort of partly renationalized. Uh, and has stumbled from uh, increasing cost to increasing cost. Does this remind you of something? Now, didn't we discuss HS2 in the last one, Mark? I, I, I couldn't possibly comment, uh, Christian. <laughs> I, I, I... <laughs> but so certainly there are simi similarities uh, with it. And then the, they appointed consultants to to look at uh, you know how to how to resolve this and the consultants ran up kind of a vast uh, bill as consultants do but they didn't really see uh, any way of resolving this and the, uh, the the ferries were supposed to be delivered two years ago uh, there is now a date of later this year for the first one and in a year's time uh, for the next one, but uh, nobody really believes that these are likely uh, to be met. I mean, they did things like when they kind of launched this uh, about four years ago. They, they, I mean, they, well, they pushed it into the Clyde. Basically, they painted black uh, blobs on the side so that they pretended that they'd actually built the windows of this thing, but they hadn't actually built the windows. They were just made to look as if that it was a nearly finished ferry. So, it, it, you know, it's it's kind of shrouded in, in scandal and difficulty. I have to be slightly uh, circumspect because of, of legal difficulties over this. But I suppose there's some lessons for this, which is, you know, don't give a contract just because it happens to be uh, the one you want it to have. Um, keep an eye on these contracts. I mean, again, lessons that the HS2 should, you know, keep an eye on it, keep a tight rein on costs. Um you know, make sure that the company that you're letting the contract to is actually capable of carrying out the work and so on. And this is part of a wider problem of uh, with CalMac, which is that they were forced really by the Scottish government to reduce fares across the board by about 40 or 50 percent. There was a bidding war between the Labour Party and the SNP. Uh, about how much they should reduce the fares. So they run up huge losses every year, about 70, 80 million pounds. And there's a question there. Of course, they provide a vital service for uh, many of the islands and uh, parts of uh, particularly the highlands. But you know, to what extent do you subsidize it? And, and, and how do you subsidize it? For example, uh, out of about seven or 8,000 ferries that were run in December, 2021, uh, something like 800 of them had absolutely no 
passengers on them at all. <laughs> so, um, you know, why do you run a ferry with absolutely nobody on it? And and uh, so I think it's all the problem of, uh, you know, overt government influence, political influence, when you actually, you know, although, of course, I'm a believer in state ownership, but not in kind of day-to-day -day state control. And so, so I mean, there's a lot of parallels with, with, with uh, uh, the railways, actually. So they got forced to cut the fares. And uh, so lots of people, lots of uh, travellers use them in the summer, particularly in camper vans. Is there, isn't there a problem with camper vans in, in um, Scotland somewhere? I believe there have been some headlines about camper vans in yeah. the last few yeah. days. Um, why, why they don't like camper vans um, using these ferries is that because they cut the cost to the cars as well as the passengers, people now just hop on these uh, ferries very cheaply and go off to these islands in their camper vans. And the trouble with camper vans for the local tourist industry is that you sleep in them, you probably bought all your food in Tesco's or Sainsbury's before you left home, and you actually spend no money locally at all. So, uh, and they take up a lot of space on these ferries that other uh, people who, particularly in you know July and August, who other people who might be ready to uh, spend a lot of money locally are squeezed out of them. So, it all goes to show there's there's you know, a real lot of issues that if a government is going to take on a ferry company, they should make sure they have commercial expertise, they should make sure that they know what the social costs and benefits are so that they uh, ensure that they deliver those at the best possible cost, and they don't interfere in the day-to-day -day running of things. Are we uh, looking at any kind of way out of this, Christian? Is there a, is there a solution? Uh, <laughs> well, horizon. Uh, there is one, which is go and get your ferries built in Turkey, which is um, what the latest two they've uh, commissioned uh, last year. Uh, they just commissioned a, a company in Turkey, which has a large shipbuilding industry, um, to uh, build these two ferries. And they look as if they might even beat the original two ferries uh, to be completed. Um, you know, they're for a different market. They're for the Orkneys, I think, but nevertheless, and the Hebrides. But nevertheless, um, I think the lesson learned is, uh, you know, that you really do put things out for tender properly um, and uh, choose the, 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 the best bidder. So, but in terms of the existing ferries, no, there's no way out. The costs are now gone up from 90 million to about 350 is the latest estimate. So nearly four times what the original cost was going to be. And, you know, as in the nature of these things, that might be uh, uh, even an underestimate. It's been reported in the news media that the Ford Motor Company has secured consent from the UK government to introduce a vehicle, a passenger car, with a degree of autonomy onto the motorway network in Great Britain. You know more about this, Christian. Uh, yes, I mean, driverless cars is a, is a story that just doesn't go away. And I, I've been fascinated by it uh, for the last four or five years and wrote my little book on it. And I'm delighted that on this podcast, we're able to return to it because it, it's one that just keeps on delivering. So uh, there's actually two bits of news uh, this week, uh, Mark. The, the first is, as you say, Ford has been given permission to allow people to take their hands off the wheel. Uh, while driving along on a preset 
series of highways of about 2,300 miles, so not anywhere else, so not in the middle of London, right? So this is on the motorways, basically, I presume, and dual carriageways. So there, you can take your hands off, but you can't take your eyes off the road. And indeed, there's a little device that kind of looks at your eyes and makes sure that you're not dozing off or um, looking at uh, uh, a film or whatever on, on your dashboard or anything like that. You have to keep your eyes on the road. Otherwise, it's sent out an alert. And if, if the alert isn't then uh, cancelled, you they actually uh, take over. But this is a first um, in that previous uh, driver assistance schemes uh, do not uh, allow you to uh, take your hands off the wheel. And this is something that the drivers, the, the supporters of driverless cars and some of the major manufacturers are, are very keen on gradually uh, taking away the necessity to uh, drive the car, really. And I have a problem with that, as I've had a problem with this all along, which is that you can't be half driverless. And this is very much moving towards being half driverless because, uh, you know, you, you if you take your hands off the wheel, it will take a, a bit of time to react if, you know, suddenly a deer jumps in front of you or, you know, a crash or whatever. It might just delay you by a, that certain amount of time that may lead to an accident, whereas if you've been paying full attention, you wouldn't. And that's the absolute problem with this is that, you know, you're either paying attention or you're not paying attention. And and this is in that kind of nebulous area of uh, allowing you to uh, do some of the things that drivers are not supposed to do, take the wheel, take the hands off the wheel, but still maintain attention. And, and I think that's an issue. And now, interestingly enough, the other piece of news, which is uh, from America, where, of course, they are miles further ahead. They've had these... Uh, cars where you can take your hands off the wheel for, for uh, several years, about three or four years. Um, and, but there they've got these robo-taxis in uh, San Francisco and one or two other places. Um, and these don't have a driver, right? Um, they are actually automatic, although um, one suspects that they have some overall central remote control. But anyway, one of these, which wasn't actually carrying anybody, um smashed at not great speed about 10 15 miles down into the back of a bus um so why did it not see the bus well uh this is a ford uh, controlled by a system called cruise which is a, a software system that uh cruise uh, that ford is ford gm has bought and um is 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 sorry it's gm and has uh now uh, uh is now deploying on various cars okay so why did it why did it miss uh the bus it's because the bus was an articulated bus and it got confused by the front of the bus and the back of the bus apparently um and uh, did not quite understand that because the front of the bus was moving away uh the the back of the bus was still kind of swerving around and anyway it hit it. And so now uh, GM Cruise has pulled all their 300 robotaxis out to kind of change the software. And I mean, this is interesting, Mark, because this sort of thing just happens all the time that, you know, you get some sort of incident and uh, you have to recall all the cars and or you have to change the software and, and so on. And while this is a technology in evolution, you think that's inevitably going to happen. 
you just see no end to it. So, you know, th these these vehicles have been in development for some 15 years. And really all we've got at the moment is a few robo taxis in San Francisco and Phoenix or one or two other places and kind of driver assistance schemes uh, like the one with Ford. But there's there seems to be no end in sight of this, of kind of actually the real genuine article of uh, a truly driverless car. So you know, I watched this one with interest and uh, I just thought it was an interesting juxtaposition of, you know, the fact that uh, this Ford uh, in England or Britain is allowed to, to be driven without people holding the wheels. Um, and yet there's kind of, you know, more problems with the driverless technology in San Francisco. There's a definite Scottish theme in this week's podcast because we're now going to talk about sleeper trains. And only very recently, the Scottish government has announced that it's taking the Caledonian sleeper franchise for which it has ultimate responsibility into the public sector for operations. But you're somebody that studied sleeper trains more generally, Christian. Uh, yes, I've just written an article for uh, The Spectator about the revival of uh, sleeper trains across uh, Europe. And, you know, this is one bit of good news. I mean, just to, to talk about the ones in the UK first. Yes, we have two left, uh, two services left, which have been uh, saved for quite a long time, actually. I remember being involved in a campaign to save the Cornish one uh, about 15 years ago with a guy called Andy Roden, who, who writes for various uh, railway magazines. Um, and save it, we did, because at the time there was threats under the uh, privatisation regime that they would cut it. And of course, the other one, as you say, is, is the Scottish one. And let's hope that it's run better than Calmac ferries uh, in future. Um, and it has new rolling stock, uh, which you know did suggest a vote of confidence in it. And in fact, it's you know, it is a, a pretty essential part of, of, of uh, the infrastructure for both Scotland and Cornwall. But across Europe, I, I used to travel often to, uh, down to the ski resorts in a, a sleeper train from Paris. Um, so you take the Eurostar, hop across from Gardunor to Gardunor and get in a ramshackled uh, sleeper train, six people to a carriage, pretty basic stuff. Um, but it got you down and you got onto the ski resorts and by, you know, 10 o'clock in that morning, you'd be on the slopes having hired your skis and whatever. It was a great. And there was even a disco uh, on the on the uh, on the train. And uh, so to help those who, young people who were staying up all night. Um, and it was uh, it was great. But unfortunately, SNCF, in their wisdom, thought, oh, these are too old. We're not interested in this service. Uh, we're going to scrap these wagons and, you know, we can't be bothered with it anymore. Um, and they scrapped some of the other services. I think there was a service down to uh, uh, Barcelona and, and uh, as well. And that that went and uh, there had been when I was a child. I used to travel on one from uh, Paris to, to uh, well, it went to Vintimiglia, but it went to the Cote d'Azur and, and we used to... Uh, uh, travel on that overnight and I used to lie in bed reading my French comic and it was very it was very exciting and wake up with the kind of as I wrote in the article the, the red mountains of the Estorel on the on the Côte d'Azur and it was a wonderful experience anyway that went a long time ago the train bleu as it was called but the good news is that really over the last few years 
various uh, existing rail companies and some new startups have started all kinds of uh, new sleeper train services. And there's there's really good reasons behind this. So there's environmental reasons, you know, it stops people flying. There's the fact that it actually saves people a hotel night. So therefore you can charge a reasonable amount of money and still uh, be a bargain because, you know, let's face it, a hotel in most European cities, you rarely get much sort of 150 or 200 euros. Um, so that can be incorporated in the, in the in the price. You arrive in the center of town refreshed without the hassle of security and all that. So there's, there's now a whole network of services, mainly uh, the, the big innovator in this is OBB, the uh, Austrian railways, which have uh, really bought new rolling stock and uh, created a whole lot of new uh, services um, in, in virtually all four directions of the compass. So they've, they've reinstated the old Orient Express route to Paris. Uh, there's one up to, to uh, Hamburg and, uh, and there's uh, some uh, towards the east as well. So uh, that's great. And then another company has started, uh, uh, Bill, uh, started uh, marketing new services. One, for example, from uh, Stockholm to Hamburg, which of course requires a boat ride in the middle. Um, and uh, um, I think this is a real start of a trend. And there is a big difference, Mark, which is that in my day, as I suggested, you know, it was a slightly ramshackled, on the cheap service, a backpacker service. And now, it, you know, just as with the Scottish one, which has improved, and also unfortunately rather improved in price as well, or rather got more expensive in price, but nevertheless, it certainly improved in comfort. There's, you know, people now sort of expect a shower. They certainly expect some sort of loo. They don't want to be trudging down a corridor in their slippers kind of at three o'clock in the morning if they've had a couple of beers, you know. Um, and so the whole service is rather different. It's now aimed at the business market rather than the backpacker market. And in a way, that's a shame because there was nothing more fun than kind of traveling in ramshackle old uh, services. But nevertheless... If this is attracting people uh, to trains instead of uh, the planes, uh, that's all well and good. I mean, one issue that really needs resolving is, you know, how to book for these things and how the fact that it's still quite difficult to, uh, you know, find a single website or it's impossible to find a single website where you can book all kind of services across Europe you know, there's been long attempts at kind of integrating all that. There is, of course, the wonderful man at Seat 61 who will advise you on uh, web, uh, his website, will advise you on virtually every journey across Europe or across the world, in fact, um, of how to do things by train. But, you know, there's still a gap there in the market. The train line has started kind of selling uh, some of these services. But, uh, you know, there, there's room for a real proper european-wide uh, railway ticketing service but that said hey you know this is a bit of good news for once here's christian's thought from the departure lounge uh well uh having just been abroad here's a good one uh the, again again a piece of good news which is that one airport in britain london city airport has dispensed with uh, the need to uh, have liquid that is only 100 millilitres to put it in a transparent uh, little bag 
not to have too many of these things and all that. It's a real hassle and to have to throw your water away and any drinks you bring through it, all this kind of hassle. Brought in, Mark, as far back as 2006 by no less than Douglas Alexander as uh, Transport Secretary in the face of uh, a threat that was, um, if you remember, the, the guy with the, sh the shoe bomber. You know, he put a couple of different liquids in his shoes um he was a guy from brixton i think and and had uh, was going to mix these two liquids up uh and that was going to cause an explosion uh, on board a transatlantic uh, plane but he got caught out um and then these rules were very hastily introduced i was thought it was slightly ludicrous that they would check kind of baby's milk and and stuff like that you know and uh, at one point, you were allowed to kind of swallow it and uh, uh, and they would let you through, but they even stopped doing that. But nevertheless, so the first scanners that kind of de can detect explosives in these liquids have been installed at London City Airport and other uh, airports are uh, due to uh, uh, follow suit um, and uh, over the next year and eventually these rules will be abandoned. So that's a good news from uh, the departure allowance and literally in the departure lounge. Calling All Stations with Christian Woolmar is a Cogitamus Limited production. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star rating from wherever you obtain your podcasts.